All right, I direct your attention to Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety, so give your attention to this reading of the inspired Word of God. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came, who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now it is necessary to understand chapter 7. Place it in the broader context of the panorama of chapters 6 and 7 together. So I'm going to spend some time tracing or describing that panoramic portrait 
that these visions suggest to us. Beginning with the panorama of chapter 6 and that canopy, or shall I say, tablet or aras or, or, or uh, pattern of the earth, in fact, the cosmos under the curse, that which begins the first four seals of chapter 6. The curse of war, you will recall, not peace. The curse of bloodshed, you may recall, not the preservation of life. The curse of famine, starvation, pestilence, and disease, not plentiful abundance nor abundant health. The curse of death and its concomitant eschatological curse, hell. This panorama of the first four seals is the story of the cosmos since sin entered the world at Satan's behest. The clash between the seed and the woman and the seed of the serpent was unleashed. This panorama is the story of the earth and the cosmos from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. From the beginning of time under the curse to the end of time and the end of the curse. It is the panoramic story of the world in which we live. The world in which we live as sinners in a sinful and evil world still under the curse. Chapter 6 also contains a panorama of the end of the earth and the cosmos. The sixth seal, the dissolution and destruction of the earth and the universe. The the creations return to nothing. As out of nothing, something came by creation. So in the end, the something of creation will be turned back to nothing, uncreated, decreated, annihilated. Sandwiched, then, between these two panoramas, which deal with the curse temporal and the curse eternal, sandwiched between these two panoramas of curse and total destruction is a window, a window open on the souls of those who have died for their testimony to the word of God and his Christ. The fifth seal between one, two, three, and four, and six, the fifth seal, sandwiched between. These glorified souls portrayed in that fifth seal have been delivered from the curse. They have been redeemed from the curse. They have been saved from the curse into heaven, even as they are exempt from the uncreation or the decreation of the cosmos at the final judgment. They are exempt from that final evident curse. Their souls have rest. Their souls have rest and peace in everlasting life. But now comes chapter 7. Chapter 7 appears to interrupt and delay the sequence of the seven seals as it intrudes itself 
and holds off the unsealing of the final seventh signet. Why? Why this lengthy chapter delaying what we're anticipating after the end of chapter 6, the unfolding of the sixth seal, and chapter 7 gives us not the seventh seal, but a break, but a long, compacted interlude. Let me suggest that the position of this chapter is the key to answering that question. The position of chapter 7 is placed between the sixth and the seventh seals. The content of this seventh chapter is contents which intrudes itself between the sixth and the seventh seal. This seventh chapter is then another sandwich. The seventh chapter sandwiched between the cosmic final judgment in the sixth seal at the end of chapter six and the breaking of the seventh seal in verse one of chapter eight. The seventh seal, the seventh chapter, I, I should say, the seventh chapter participates in the paradigm of the narrative imagery of the book of Revelation in that it not only <clears throat> intrudes itself as a sandwich between two elements of the unfolding of the book, but it amplifies and duplicates another sandwich of this apocalypse. In other words, I am suggesting that the sandwich of chapter 7 between the end of 6 and the beginning of 8 is like the sandwich between the end of the fourth seal and the beginning of the sixth. There's an amplification and a duplication involved in seal number five and in this seventh chapter. Well, what is that amplification? The amplification and duplication here in chapter seven is an expansion upon the drama of the fifth seal. Now in chapter seven, not merely the martyrs for Christ saved by grace, which was the center of the fifth seal in chapter six, not merely the martyrs, but Christians from every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven saved by grace in Christ. You see the similarity, the parallel. What is detailed in this seventh chapter is an expansion upon this motif of the salvation of believers, the martyrs in chapter six, and now the nations in chapter 7. Here in chapter 7, then, a community of salvation untouched anymore by the curse, by death, by destruction, by the final judgment. They too, like the martyrs of the fifth seal, are exempted from the curse and the deconstruction of the cosmos. Here, as with the martyrs of the sixth chapter, is the community of the recreation, not the community of the decreation. It is the community of the new heavens and new earth, not the community of the world of hell and its eternal or everlasting curse. 
This is an amplification and expansion, a further interpretation and elucidation of the grace of God given in terms of the celestial glory of those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Martyrs in chapter 6, everybody else in chapter 7. Now, to support this, notice how chapter 7 opens. It opens with the restraint upon the unleashing of destruction to the earth or to the seas or to the trees. Destructive forces upon these elements of creation are held back. They are held back and repressed. These destructive forces are repressed until when? Notice what the text says. Until all of the elect of God have been sealed with his seal. Now, it's true that the word elect is not there, but those who are sealed are sealed by God's own elective choice. Here in the displays of the seals, sevenfold seals, as we're reading the unfolding of these seals, one through seven, here in the display of these seven seals, another seal an incomparable seal, a seal greater than any of the seven seals. Here, in this chapter, a seal of God and the Lamb. Now, there is a panorama to amplify. There is a blessing or benediction to expand upon. There is something to dig in, to dig into and meditate upon. There is something to embellish and enlarge upon the wondrous act of God's goodness and grace to seal with his signet, to seal with his seal, to seal not for destruction, but to seal for salvation. Martyrs and believers from the nations as well. He will seal with his own seal an elect multitude of his very own choosing. We would repeat the double amen in verse 12 of this chapter, even as it was expressed by those falling before the throne of God when the vision unfurled. Now, with this overview of the broader narrative panorama or the panoramic structure, let's pause for a moment and to notice the smaller or microstructure of this seventh chapter. I direct your attention to the opening words of verse 1. After this, and as you scan the other verses of this chapter, I ask you to notice if you see any other verse that begins like that first verse. Verse 9, very good. <clears throat> the Greek here is very precise. After this, singular, in verse 1. After these, plural, in verse 9. <clears throat> these two introductory phrases... And there's two words in the Greek. 
These two introductory phrases are introducing two subplots to this seventh chapter. Two elements, two units, two sections of this seventh chapter. We create a subunit then from verse 1 to 8, and we create a second unit or subplot from verses 9 to 17. So we have two specifically distinguished units of description in this seventh chapter, which are keyed or signaled by the words after this or after these. Now, the subject of the units. We have two subunits. We have two sections. What's the subject of the subunits? Well, it is the same in each case. It is the elect redeemed of the Lord. I can say redeemed, but I want to emphasize the election because these are those who have been chosen by God's own elective purpose. You will hear that phrase later on in the book, from the foundation of the world. That's an elective or predestinatory statement. So I'm inserting it, even though the word doesn't occur in the text, because it is consistent with the rest of the interpretation that the book gives us. The elect redeemed of the Lord is the subject of both of these subunits, verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 17. The elect 144,000 in verses 1 to 8. The elect from the nations in verses 9 to 17. Are these two complementary groups? Or are they two separate and distinct groups? Does one represent the salvation of elect Jews? the number 144,000 and the numbering of the tribes of Israel, while the other represents the salvation of elect Gentiles from every nation. Is that what's going on here? In other words, the first unit of this subplot is Jewish election. The second unit is Gentile election. Is that what is happening? Or is the 144,000 number symbolic of the salvation of all the elect of God, Jew and Gentile alike, and the elect of the nation, including Jews and Gentiles, drawn to the Lord from all the nations. In other words, is the 144,000 a symbolic number number of the entirety of Jewish and Gentile election and redemption? Now, as we think about these possibilities... I admit and confess that it's difficult to choose between the options. And one of the reasons it's difficult is because one of the features of this book we're studying is duplication and repetition. So that one might be tempted to favor the view that these are the same group of redeemed elect using the imagery of Israel, the Israel of God, Old Testament and New Testament alike, and the imagery of the redeemed elect from every nation, Jew and Gentile alike, the one complementing and being complemented by the other. Or are we dealing with distinctive images? 
One reserved to elect Old Testament Israel, symbolized in the 144,000, and the other to elect Gentiles from among the nations whom Christ in his great commission urged his followers to evangelize. Go ye therefore and disciple, make disciples of all nations, which is generally a term in the New Testament for Gentile nations. Well, a great deal of ink has been spilled in interpreting this figure, 144,000. I've already spilled a little bit of ink of my own in talking about it. The number 144,000 can be factored as 12 times 12 or 12 squared. You know how to square a number, you multiply it by itself, 5 times 5, 25, 5 to the second power, 25, 3 to the second power, 9, etc. If you remember your squares and your square roots, what's the square root of 36? It's 6 because it's 6 times 6, etc. So you have the factor of 12 by 12 here, and then the number 1,000, 10 by 10 by 10. Now we've cubed a number. 10 cubed, 10 by 10 by 10, is 10 to the third power, or 1,000. 144 is 12 squared. 144 times 1,000, 144,000. Now, the squaring of the 12 and the cubing of the 10 are expressions of superabundant fullness and perfection. In other words, it's a greater sense of, uh, of exaltation and uh, completion and fullness than even the number seven provides. But is there a peculiarity about this number 12 with respect to the tribes of Israel? As you read that list between verses four and eight, you will notice that one of the twelve sons of Jacob is missing. And Marge, you're nodding your head. Who's missing? Gad is not Gad, I'm sorry. Dan, that's right. Dan is missing. Absent and not represented at all. Why is one of the northern tribes, why is one of the northern tribes missing? Well, some have speculated that Dan is missing here because of Dan's part in the idolatry which took the northern kingdom down the road to worshiping Baal and the ultimate destruction of that northern kingdom by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Dan and Bethel were two locations where Jeroboam I placed golden calves to keep the northern tribal peoples, the people of the ten northern tribes from going down to the temple or to the tabernacle in Jerusalem, actually to the temple, because the temple was built before he became king. I think that's an interesting suggestion, but it certainly has no uh, proof from the scriptures, only a suggestion. Why would Dan be any more responsible than any other nine tribes that were also involved in that idolatry? Randy, you had your hand up. 
became half-tribes to make up the one tribe of Joseph when he died. And that's another interesting peculiarity here. <clears throat> but um, the suggestion that Dan is more complicit in the idolatry of the northern kingdom I don't think holds water when you compare all of the idolaters of the northern kingdom arising from the ten tribes as a whole, in addition to Dan and the rest who all followed the lead of Jeroboam the first down the, 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 uh, uh, the wretched trail of the worship of Baal and Astarte. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't answer that. I'd have to go back and look. So give me a, give me a quick minute here. I think you may be right about Benjamin. No, the Danites are involved in that, in that uh, debacle. Yeah. And that's, of course, before the northern kingdom is distinguished. It's before... Uh, the, the coming of David. Well, I'm not. I'm awake now. I'm not satisfied with that proposal that Dan is absent because of his responsibility for being taking part of the lead in the Northern Kingdom's idolatry. But nonetheless. This reaffirms some in the conviction that we're dealing with a symbolic number, not a literal number, of elect Jews. In other words, if one tribe is missing, then this is symbolism. I think there's plausibility to that suggestion. But on that point, there are undoubtedly many more elect of the Jewish race than a mere 144,000. For instance, the modern Jews for Jesus movement would put us well above the number of 144,000. In addition, notice that the tribe of Joseph is mentioned in verse 8, and the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned in verse 6. But there's another one missing. The half-tribe of Ephraim is not listed on this list. So we've got two conundrums. The 12 tribes are not 12 complete tribes as we know them from the Old Testament record. <clears throat> Ephraim is missing and Dan is missing. Joseph has been added and Manasseh has been included to make up for the, for the missing, the other missing two. What should have been here was Ephraim and Manasseh and no Joseph and Dan to make up the total of the twelve. With the Ephraim and Manasseh understood as half-tribes. Well, I step back from this conundrum with this problem of the missing two tribes, or one and a half tribes, I should say more accurately, tribe and a half. I step back from this conundrum and admit that it is a mystery which I cannot solve nor do I think anyone else has solved it to date. So we will leave that as a question to be referred to the, the highest court ever, and that's the very throne room of God himself. Yes, 
Ben. Yes, um, I, I wouldn't deny that that's a possibility. He, he, he said, would it be that it's a symbolic number of the Israel of God, the whole Israel of God, meaning Old and New Testament saved alike as the Israel of God. I'm stating it correctly, Ben. Yeah, so the, the, the completion idea would be it's the Israel of God, not necessarily the specific tribes of Israel that are, uh, are being uh, promoted. I, 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 I can't deny that <clears throat> that, that is appealing. My, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, as I'll say in a, in a few minutes or in the second half, <clears throat> half today, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, with rigidly uh, distinguishing here and the fact that there's no completion, that, the, that what was a part of the Israel of God of old is, uh, is not here. To say that there were no saved out of the tribe of Dan, even symbolically or representatively, were no saved out of the tribe of Ephraim, even symbolically, because... Ephraim in the book of Hosea becomes a subject of the remnant of theology, the restoration to God's wonderful grace. So, not impossible, Ben, plausible, but I'm not persuaded myself. I'm persuaded that what is here is a mystery and remains a mystery to me. It's not a mystery to Ben. Randy, did you have a solution to the mystery? No, I, this is a little way of celery, but on track. Uh, Joseph is not considered a tribe because he left and went to Egypt. Was there another son that replaced that tribe? After? Yes, there are two. His two sons. Oh, his two sons. Yeah, his two sons are Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh is here, and they were counted as half-tribes. Remember, in the no, no, no. He didn't have any children before he went to Egypt. Remember, he was a he was a youth when he was taken right. down into Egypt. He married an Egyptian princess, or an Egyptian daughter of a of a priest, and they had two children. And they were Ephraim and Manasseh, and that group of people at the Exodus had grown under the headship of of their original fathers. And so they were counted as a half tribe. And so in the, in the distribution of the land, you will notice the half tribe of Ephraim and the half tribe of Manasseh are listed because they make up the tribe of Joseph. So Joseph disappears in terms of a tribal identification. But his two sons continue to represent his, his one tribe as two half tribes. I should have known that. Uh, it, it's just something we forget because we're not thinking about it all the time or not thinking about the Old Testament all the time. All right. Before we take our break, one further observation on this number 12. 
with 12 squared or 12 times 12. 12 reflects the 12 tribes of Israel as we've already discussed. It also reflects the 12 apostles. We have the Israel of God of the Old Testament elect from the 12 tribes. And we have the Israel of God of the New Testament elect from the labors of the 12 apostles. The elect people of God of both testaments would be symbolized by the duplicate 12s. 12 for the people of God there and 12 for those who become the people of God from the work of 12 apostles here. Now, I lean to the view that the 144,000 symbolizes elect Old Testament Israel, and the great multitude of verse 9 symbolizes the elect Gentile peoples. But while I lean that way, I admit that this previous 12 by 12 Old and New Testament progression is plausible, and it has its own appeal, namely... The 144,000 is an attempt to represent 12 by 12 as including the whole history of redemption and those who have been saved within it. And on that matter, I rest my case on mystery and plausibility or perhaps implausibility, and I'll let you take your break. All right, let me summarize the broad panoramic narrative structure of Revelation 6 and 7. The fifth seal, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, portrays the glorification of martyr saints. This vision is sandwiched between the protological or general curse, which hangs over the created order from the time of the fall in Genesis 3. That's the symbolism of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. As I said, the fifth seal is sandwiched between the first four seals and the sixth seal. That sixth seal is a vision of the eschatological or final curse judgment of the created order, chapter 6, 12 to 17. The sandwiched fifth seal also testifies to the delay of the eschatological end until the number of all the martyr saints is completed. Notice verse 11 of chapter 6. Now, the seventh chapter. The seventh chapter portrays the glorification of non-martyr saints. Non-martyr saints. Though these glorified individuals do suffer tribulation in the world, as verse 14 indicates. This seventh chapter is sandwiched between the eschatological curse of the sixth seal, chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, and the opening of the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1. And you will notice that I'm not giving you any hints about what that seventh seal means. I'm keeping you intentionally in suspense because... John does. He delays the opening of that seal for one whole chapter. Note the parallel. The seventh chapter testifies to the delay of the eschatological or consummate end 
until the number of all the redeemed servants of God is sealed and completed, verse 3 of chapter 7. Once again, curse motif, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and curse motif, chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, sandwich a non-curse or glorification motif, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Curse motif, chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, and the motif of the final or seventh seal in chapter 8, verse 1, sandwiches the redemption and glorification motif of chapter 7. Curse, curse, and in between, in both instances, salvation, glorification. Why? Because of the pattern of duplication and reemphasis. But even more, the wonderful and gracious benefits of that state of glorification are amplified and richly expanded by the details of this seventh chapter. What is the first wonderful benefit of this glorification? It is the seal. It is the sealing of the elect. Sealed by the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.13. So that the work of the Holy Spirit is a sign and seal of ownership, possession. The elect are owned and possessed by God. They belong to him. They are his precious possession. This seal is a seal of identification, a seal of protection, a seal of participation. It is a seal of the ownership which God has signified for his chosen children, sons, and daughters. But also, expanding upon what this seal means, further on in the book of Revelation, we learn that the mark of ownership, this seal, which is signified here, this seal is signified by having the name of God the Father and the name of the Lamb of God on the foreheads of those who are sealed with it. Chapter 14, verse 1. It is not only that he seals his ownership, but he labels you. You are my possession. I own you. I put my name upon you. And not only do I put my name upon you as your Father in heaven, but I put the name of the Lamb who is in the center of the throne of glory. You have the name of God and of the Lamb upon your forehead. Because you belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Believers saved by grace belongs to the triune God. The Father's and the Son's name written on their foreheads, sealed by the name of God the Holy Spirit. There is a seal to delight in. There is a seal to magnify and expand upon in your own estimation, there is a seal to convey to you the riches of the glory of the triune God. Next. Next is the clothing of the redeemed elect. As with the martyr saints in chapter 611, this multitude in verse 9 is dressed in white robes. Robes which echo the prophetic words of the prophet Isaiah, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, Isaiah 1.18. Here, 
in chapter 7 of Revelation, the stain remover for the sins of the elect is the blood of the Lamb, verse 14. Now there is a delicious irony, is there not? The crimson blot of sin and guilt is washed away by the scarlet blood of the Lamb of God. Washed in that cleansing stream, red is turned to white by red. That's not our usual experience of dealing with bloodstains, is it? We don't wash them out with another red-colored stain remover. But here, this irony of the, the white appearance out of their red-stained and blotted spiritual condition is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And this white-robed multitude, this white-robed multitude also receives the gift of standing before the throne of God in robes as brilliant as the righteousness robe that Jesus wears by virtue of his justification. He is declared just and righteous. He is declared a just and righteous Savior by his resurrection from the dead. He is dressed in a white robe of righteousness, sinlessness, no guilt. He dresses his elect with the same robe of righteousness, freely given and imputed to them. A robe of sinlessness, all sins removed. A robe of no guilt, all guilt and iniquity removed and forgiven. The privilege of the elect of the Lamb is not only to be washed in his blood, but to be dressed in his resurrection garments. These white robes are the robes of your risen Savior. He allows you to share the color of the same garment that he wears as he, as he stands at the right hand, sits at the right hand of the majesty and glory on high. This multitude is carrying palm branches, signs of their victory over the enemy, death and hell of chapter 6, verse 8. Waving palms of triumph, they participate in the glorious victory of the Lamb whose blood conquered death with life, whose sinlessly righteous life paid the price of the curse of hell. In truth, palm branches are celebratory celebrating the victory over death through and in the Lamb, triumph over the yawning gates of hell through and in the powerful, risen Lamb of God. Some have suggested that these palm branches are a reflection of the Feast of Tabernacles. I do not think so. I think they are simply emblems of the victory procession of the Lamb of God. And this crowd of the redeemed by the grace of God and the Lamb through the Holy Spirit, this crowd confesses. This crowd professes. This crowd declares before the triune God and the host of heaven in verse 10, salvation, our salvation. Salvation comes from God and the Lamb to whom we belong, whose spotless righteous robes we wear, whose palms of victory we raise, in whose habitation we dwell now and forevermore. For he has raised or placed his tabernacle over us. He has made us the center of his protective tabernacle edifice. He has tabernacled amongst us in the person of his Son, 
and He has tabernacled over and around us in His glorious dwelling place. We will serve Him night and day. We will hunger no more. Neither will we thirst any more, for we drink long and deep from the springs of the water of life in a world where there is no more death. And God wipes away all tears from our eyes, for we live in a world where there is no more sorrow. This is the tabernacle of our shepherd, our good shepherd, who knows each of us by name and guides us and covers us with his tabernacle dwelling place. The eschatological shepherd who is also, here's this irony again, the eschatological shepherd who is also the eschatological lamb. Think of that. The lamb is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Think of that. The Lord who is the shepherd becomes the lamb. Blessing and glory and honor be to him and to our God forever and ever. Amen and amen. As this crowd hears the confession of those seated around the throne of God in glory. May that confession and prayer be in your heart and on your lips now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we bless you for the wonder of amplifying our understanding of these glorious truths. And we particularly thank you for the sealing of our lives, the sealing of our souls, the sealing of our persons by your own power, through your spirit and by the blood of your Son. We bless you for that cleansing fountain, And thank you that though our sins be as scarlet, we may be as white as snow in your presence through the grace of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the garments of righteousness that we wear because of his imputed righteousness to us. That which came to him by the glory of his resurrection from the dead, he shares and gives and grants to us to wear as a reflection of his wonderful work on our behalf. Thank you for taking us in. Thank you for making us your dwelling place. Thank you for making us part of your dwelling place. Thank you for incorporating us in to the victory triumph of your son. We would raise palm branches even in spirit, thanking, and tri- thanking you for the triumph that he has won over death and hell and the deep abyss. Oh, Lord, thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we belong to you through that saving grace. And we bless your name now and forevermore through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our eternal King and High Priest. Amen. If you have any final questions or comments, I'll be glad to take them. Yes, Ben. I have a question about the seating. About the seating. In the first eight verses, all the tribes are sealed. And then in verse 9 it says, I looked and there's a great multitude. And there's nothing said about the great multitude having been sealed. It seems to me that verses 1 through 8 
indicate that those are great multitudes are the ones that were sealed. So, so verses 9 and so on, they uh, speak of the same group of people, now that they're sealed. Yes, it, it, it could be. In other words, what, that's part of the amplification or the expansion. In other words, there's a duplication here, which is a duplication of expanding upon the multitude from every tribe being sealed, not just that, that from Old Testament Israel. Yes. That, uh, that is a possibility. 